Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Gary Mortensen. We're at Stoller. It's July 15th, 2022. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, first question to get things rolling is why wine? <laughs> why wine? Um, it wasn't a plan. It wasn't a passion. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't uh, anything really. It was just an opportunity. So that's how it started for me. Um, probably a little thematic throughout my life, but it was, uh, I didn't know what to do. And um, you know, I'd heard that uh, I'd heard from my mom in 1988 that uh, a little winery was looking for some help, and uh, I didn't even know there were wineries in or <laughs> in Yamhill County. Uh, but uh, a, a friend of my mom's was working there, and so uh, I went up and, and met with Bill Blosser and had a conversation with him, and uh, we had a nice conversation and. You know, one thing led to the other, and I was found myself at least part time to start with working at Soka Blosser Winery. That was in late. It was the summer of nineteen eighty eight, so it was really fun. It was. I thought it would just be something fun to do while I was looking to see what I wanted to do when I grew up. So, um, before that, I was working for a, a local, locally owned company called Payless Drugstores, which a long time ago there was a Payless in McMinnville, and. Uh, I grew up in McMinnville, so I'm, I'm a local. Um, and I worked there and, uh, and ended up, uh, after college, I ended up um, working for the corporate office for Payless and uh, doing M&A stuff, kind of getting into merger and acquisition stuff, and then the company sold. And after that, I didn't want to be part of the new Kmart, Rite Aid, sort of thing that was happening, so I left and took some time off. When I came back, I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do, so I came back and uh, was playing a lot of tennis. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, so it was it was to try to figure out what I wanted to do, and I thought, well, wouldn't this be kind of interesting? I was more of a beer and wild turkey guy back then. and uh, But I thought, yeah, it might be fun to, to do. And so I went up there and met with them, and, and my, you know, uh, the, the industry back then in 1988 was a very different industry than it is now. It was a handful of wineries and, uh, you know, um, the economy was very different. Wine drinkers and, you know, sophistication and levels of what they consumed were different. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, was, it was much more of a, it had much more of a family collegial feel to it. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't really the big business that it's turned into back then. Mm -hmm. So it felt very much like a small local business um, that was looking, but but you could see that there was already growing demand back then for, and of course the, all the things that had happened with the '83 and '85 uh, vintages back with the uh, you know the big taste-offs and Burgundy and all those things that happened were were putting Oregon on the map. So it wasn't it wasn't completely a little lemonade stand. It was actually really starting to take off, but. Um, I remember uh, sitting up on the roof of the winery and looking up on the hill to the north um, and seeing this big building being built, and, uh, which was Domain Druin, and watching that happen. And 
and the sort of the, the shot that was heard around the world when Druin decided to mm -hmm. you know, invest in Oregon, and it was significant. Mm -hmm. and, um, I remember when Ken Wright came out with a $25 bottle of Pinot Noir back then, because we everything we sold were like nine dollars, and uh, and that was the price. I mean, because it was that was what you know, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of Riesling and Mueller Turgau, and, and that's what people were drinking. And then the the fancy people came up and drank, bought some Pinot. But it, you could see that things were starting to change and that there was more demand and wine tasting in general was starting to take off. And Oregon was, you could, you could see that it was, it, the bones were there. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was still a, a struggling industry and still trying to find its identity. And, and, uh, and it was really fun to be part of it at that time. Um, and uh, I think it was early in the, the following year, Bill Blosser, they called me in to, for a meeting and, uh, they, uh, and Susan Sokoblosser was there, and Susan really didn't have a lot of involvement uh, other than being on the board at the time, not, nothing really operationally. But it was, they brought me in on a Sunday, and we had a meeting, and, uh, and Bill announced that he was stepping down and that Susan would be taking over uh, the president role in the, in the winery, and they asked me to become their vice president, and, um, <clears throat> and, and off we went. And, uh, and it was, it was really a, I, I look back at that time and I really appreciated the time um, as a lot of discovery happened at that time. The industry was really <clears throat> growing, but slowly, but it was in a state of kind of transitional flux. Mm -hmm. um, but there were still very real sort of small business challenges that, that were everywhere. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ours was to work on things around, um, you know, um, Building, building up meaningful supply chain, um, building demand, uh, uh, shifting products uh, away maybe from some of the wines that had been successful to more of the Pinot Noir driven wines. You know, um, <clears throat> there was a lot of uh, deferred maintenance, things like that, that you just did come with any business that were um, challenges that, that in those early days in particular, mm -hmm. um, with Susan coming on board and we spent a lot of time talking about you know, where we wanted the winery to go and, and uh, what those barriers and challenges that were in front of us would, would look like. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's one of the first things that we did was uh, shortly thereafter was relabel. And uh, Soka Blosser had an iconic label. It was kind of a square with a little tiny bit of dome on the top. And, you know, it was my first real, um, I think, experience in dealing with sort of the, you know, uh, the, the, the sentimental attachment to a label. And Susan was very, very attached to that. And we had a lot, of, a lot of conversations about changing that, though, because we wanted to shift the winery away from, um, you know, shift it more into that Pinot Noir driven. You could see that the prices were going to go up, that there was going to be more demand. And it was sort of that strategy around that. And um, it, was, it was fun. It was, uh, it was challenging. There was, uh, you know, there was, Again, in those early days, there was there was a lot of things to get done that would set us up, and and not necessarily all the resources that were required to do that. So you had to you had to put those plans in place that were based on priority, mm -hmm. and uh, some of that stuff isn't fun at all. If it's a new glycol system or a press, but you know you can't always do the flashy fresh. So you got to put the infrastructure in place, and so. Um, uh, and we were, we were, you know, we had some wonderful vintages come right out in 1990, right out of the gate was a really wonderful vintage that came out in 91, 92. I mean, the 94s were all just like tremendous. And 
you could see that that our growth at Sokol Blaster was taking off with the growth of the industry. Mm -hmm. We were able to pace or even outpace that. Um, there was a point where, um, you know, we wanted to find out creative ways to generate cash to help really with our, you know, kind of our growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that, that um, I came up with was, you know, bringing concerts out to the winery. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a little bit controversial, which is sort of thematic for me. Um, but uh, you know, anytime that you can affiliate your, anytime you can affiliate your brand with Tony Bennett, Ray Charles, Al Jarreau, George Benson, you know, names like that, I think it's a good thing. Uh, but it's an interesting thing too because uh, you know you've got these confluences and convergences of. Uh, and I see. I think we're seeing it right now in our country, even now, is that you have sort of cultural, you know, sort of expectations. You know, this county was a formerly dry county, as I'm sure you've heard many times. And um, this idea of the wine industry was sort of somewhat tolerated to a degree. And then when you start bringing in big national acts and the, and the taxing on the infrastructure, which was real, and but also the celebration of music. I grew up in this community, and uh, we wanted to go see somebody like Tony Benny. I had to drive to. Portland, you know, you, you could never have it here. So mm -hmm. to me, it was exciting to bring that here. It was controversial, and certainly, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't make as many friends as I expected <laughs> over that. But it was really effective. We ended up over the ten-year we did the Soka Blossom concert series. I think we ended up doing thirty-six concerts, and all big names like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it really, you know, it, it helped to brand the the organization. Uh, you know. We got a lot of publicity. We got a, just people from all over got new exposure to the brand. Mm -hmm. So it was really tremendous. Um, and I don't regret doing them at all because they, they really helped us with our plans in terms of growth and, uh, and all of that. And, uh, and Susan came to me one day and said, you know, I, I, she said, I, I want to um, do something with the Mueller-Turgau that's, you know, we don't want to be known as the Mueller-Turgau winery. And uh, we had a lot of conversations around that. Um, she said, I'd like to try to find a, make a white blend. And so that came into my, because I kind of drove a lot of the marketing. Um, so I started thinking a lot about it. This was in, gosh, I want to think 96, maybe 97, somewhere in there. Um, <clears throat> my son had just, I think he had just been born when we launched it. But um, the idea was, uh, to take Mueller-Turgau and Riesling too, because Riesling is, you know, you saw Pinot going like this and Mueller-Turgau and Riesling in terms of, if nothing else, cool factor. Uh, but they were, they were, they paid the bills. Mm -hmm. They really did. They, uh, they were great. So we didn't want to lose that income, that revenue stream. But at the same time, we wanted to become more serious about the Pinot Noir and, 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 and it was happening. I mean, the, the relabeling, all those things were really helping. This awareness in Oregon Pinot Noirs was helping us to grow. Our distribution was was taking off very, very well. So things were working really well. Um, so the thinking was was why don't we why don't we come up with a white wine that was maybe it isn't like Sokol Blosser blend white blend or something like that, but to create something that would be a real movement, something mm -hmm. that would that could change you know kind of change the paradigm a little bit. And so um, anyone anyone that's met me knows I'm a huge Beatles fan and. Uh, so the idea was, why don't we do something that really pushes the envelope? And so um, I, I remember calling up a, 
our, our vineyard guy and our winemaker saying, we have a little soca blast here, a little test vineyard right in the front. It's like, how many different little test things do we have in there? And uh, he said, I think we have total, so we're talking about it, could we get, how many, how many blends could we put together? He goes, I think we can do eight. And I said, is, are, is, there, is there even some little small thing? He goes, yeah, there's like a little tiny bit. I think it was muscat. And I said, so that'd give us nine. He said, yeah. So I said, okay. So, you know, revolution. And I wanted to call it revolution nine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we thought that might be a little, <laughs> little I don't want to get sued. I, maybe it's not bad to be sued by Apple, but uh, we changed it to evolution nine. And, uh, and uh, Sandstrom Design, Sally Morrow and Sandstrom Design came up with this, that, that letter block. I don't know if you ever saw the letter block nine. And then David Brooks, a uh, good friend of mine who's a copywriter, um, came up with uh, all the things you can do, which was the Watusi and the twist. And for everybody from that generation that, that ever listened to the White Album, especially uh, Revolution 9, could hear John Lennon saying all those things, the Watusi and the twist. And so we, we thought it'd be really fun to put that all in. And, and so we launched uh, Evolution 9, I think it was in 97. <clears throat> and, uh, and the thing about it was, and I think this is, this is one of the things that's been thematic and has stayed with me, is that um, you know, everybody kind of got it. You know, we, we sent it out to the gatekeepers, we sent it out to the press, and everybody understood that this was playful and that it was also really fun wine. And it was, we weren't trying to be, this wasn't a serious wine. It was a good wine, a really well-made wine at a good price, but it wasn't, didn't have to be a serious wine. And so when, you, when, you, when you're able to hit that chord like that and everybody kind of gets the joke, it's like the long and winding road will make you want to let it be and just have a, you know, all those things. Because, it, because at that time, 20 years ago now, or whatever it's been, like 25 years ago, I guess, <clears throat> those were the, those, you know, those boomers were your wine writers and your stewards, and so that hit perfectly. Mm -hmm. And the wine just took off. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> what, I, what I really realized about my time at Silver Blosser was my first startup. As part of, it was really my first startup. Part of the, being part of something like that that had a lot of growth was, um, really life-giving for me, and I was, I was excited by that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we did a lot of things that were innovative. I mean, the, the music and, the, and evolution, I think, are two of the highlights, but it was, you know, a lot of times they're, they're, you either like to operate on a tightrope without a net or you don't, and I like to. And, uh, and Susan's wonderful to work with because she's, um, you know, she's, she's very willing to you know, try, let us try new things and, and was very open-minded about that. And, uh, and I also really learned a lot about her, you know, her value system and who mm -hmm. she is as a person. Um, <clears throat> she was, Susan was out there talking about the environment and, you know, global warming and things like that before anybody mm -hmm. and putting their money where their mouth was and the, the way they built their, their new cellar and solar panels and all that when it was like, it almost seemed like a novelty back then, but she was just really far ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I, I appreciated that a lot, um, and I learned from that. Um, it wasn't my focus, but it was something to be exposed to, and you know. And I look back at that and, and really appreciate it because they, they've always been very value-based, all the, mm -hmm. you know, the whole family, and, I, and I, I think that that's wonderful. And to have been part of that for 11 years was a really good thing. But you know, I, I, I think that there also comes times when, you know, it's it's good to move and. Uh, 
Alex and Allison were coming into the business and it was, you know, a, a time, it was really their time and it was really my time too. And, uh, you know, Susan and Alex and Allison are all friends and I mean, it's all, you know, it was just time to go. And, uh, and I was looking for the next thing and the next thing took me into a completely different direction. <laughs> which was a tech startup, mm -hmm. 1999. Um, so in September 1999, I started, I left the winery, and, uh, and, I, and I, I thought I'd never look back. It was like, check the box, I've been in the wine industry, check the box, let's do something completely different. And, uh, and I went to work uh, for a, a tech startup called Cusent, which was founded by Pat Cox and Kevin Anderson. They had taken, just had taken the year before Metro One Public, so Metro One, if you dial, you know, 411, that was those guys. So based here in Beaverton. Um, so it was really wonderful to, to, um, to do that. We, we spent time talking and we were gonna, well, they were entrepreneurs. And so we were talking early on about maybe doing a film aggregation site because I had, in, during my time at Soko Blosser, I'd written uh, a screenplay that was produced into an independent film. And it, and it was really cool. And uh, it was really fun to do. And Sean Levy liked it, and you know the critic for Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. You know, but it never really got any distribution or anything. But it was really fun, <laughs> really fun to do. And it was a full-on production, shot in film, 35 millimeter, the whole thing. Um, but I was thinking about it. how do you aggregate a bunch of films and, and allow someone to come and see them? Because how else do you get distribution? So I, I talked to them about that, and they were saying oh, that's an interesting idea. So we talked about it, and I'd go over to their house, and it turns out that those guys lived about a mile from me, and so I'd just go over to their house and bring lots of wine, so I incurred favor with them. And one day, Pat came downstairs, I'll never forget it, and he said, I got an idea for another business. Because it's, because he's in data. He said, it's something about a, a query sent. You know, if you take a query and you want to send it, so a query sent, call it QSENT. Because I'm just thinking about, you know, maybe we get into this this idea where we use data. And so I was like, okay. And so they they called me and they said, if you want us to fund your film thing, we'll fund that for you. Um, and I said, well, what if I just came to work for you guys? So they hired me as their first guy. I was their first employee hired in September 1999. And uh, Pat came to me and said, okay, well, <clears throat> we have a non-compete. Uh, in it for a year, so we have to do something else. And he said, I have this idea about coming up with a way that you can hail a taxi that's different than just picking up the phone. He goes, you could use your phone. And if you remember back in 1999 what phones looked like, there weren't these, there weren't these things. Um, <clears throat> they were very different, and, and, but you could put a, the real estate with these five little things in the top. Mm -hmm. And so um, he, because he'd worked with all the carriers, he had strong relationships and uh, was able to get IQ Taxi featured. And so I was asked to <laughs> come up with a taxi program. And uh, so worked with a bunch of engineers and we started coming up with this idea and there weren't location-based services like there are now. So back then it was, I'm standing on this corner, I, but you could just use it digitally and say, I'm standing on the corner of you know Fourth and Morrison, please come and get me. And so we built this program and <laughs> it was pretty cool. Uh, we, we ended up getting exclusive contracts uh, 
with 90% uh, of the taxi uh, livery and black car services in the nation uh, in the top 125 markets. It allowed us to get about $8 million in funding. <clears throat> and it was really fascinating to work with. Um, but ultimately, what I learned was, <clears throat> this is, I guess, kind of the thematic thing <laughs> throughout my life is, um, you know, sometimes you can do a little bit too far ahead. And in this one, we were, um, the technology wasn't quite there. When you look at your average taxi company in 1999, it was still like it was in 1950. <laughs> like old phone lines and plugging <laughs> things in and all this stuff. So there was this, you know, taxi industries like banking or, you know, that's why Uber ended up ultimately just going around those guys because <laughs> there was no way to do it. We tried to work with them. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was, it never really fully quite worked. So, um, but had we hung on to it for five or six years, it would have been what they need to defeat Uber. Mm -hmm. But the mentality was very different. It was all about medallions back then and <laughs> working with a, an interesting group of folks. I'll leave it at that. Um, but it was fun. And then 9-11 happened. And uh, by then, the, the non-compete was off, and they were starting to get into this idea of data aggregation and using telco data uh, for things like extreme risk mitigation scenarios or financial risk or all these things. And so, uh, again, when you think back in 19 or 2001, there were still more landlines than there were cell phones, but cell phones were emerging. Landlines were still predominant. Everybody still used their phone. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Um, when 9-11 happened, I parachuted into D.C. and spent two and a half years working with the intelligence community in D.C., uh, providing, working with companies like LexisNexis and the CIA, and working with the NSA, working with, uh, even before DHS, was called ONRA, Office of National Risk Assessment, which folded into DHS, doing all those things. It was, it was really fascinating uh, to be part of that. So... Um, opened up my eyes to a whole new world and, and uh, the whole DC culture and all that and uh, continued to do that um, until 2005 and uh, and then the company sold um, to TransUnion and uh, I didn't want to be part of that. I just felt like that was just going to settle into a J-O-B and I, uh, what I found about my time at QCENT and working with Pat Cox was I worked with some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. They were 100% entrepreneurs. Um, the world is possible. Everything is possible. Um, visionary people, uh, people that have stayed with me my whole life since then. Um, and, that, and that a way of looking at the life and the world in, in, in maybe a different way than I'd ever in my past. It was transformative for me. So it was a really important time. So um, then I did some consulting. Um, for a year or two trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I started my own, um, uh, with a partner, started a, a, an organization called the National uh, Combat History Archive, mm -hmm. um, sort of taking the, my love of history, military history, and um, data aggregation, putting that together, kind of like I was going to do with the films, but started doing it around history. Um, at the same time, got involved in a... Uh, I, another startup called Phone Wallet. Um, so, give me that serial entrepreneurial thing, um, <laughs> which which uh, 
again, speaking of something that is brilliant, but ahead, too far ahead of its time. But um, during the, uh, the National Combat History Archive, uh, I founded within that Lucky Forward Films, which was my film, kind of going back to the film thing. And as we started to aggregate this World War II, we were really focused on World War II veteran stories, I started getting in just a, just a huge amount of, let me turn that off. Um, as, as we got into that, we just uh, I started getting a huge amount of footage coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, l when you look at what you get from, from World War II and you look at what you get from Iraq even, and that was 20 years ago now, but it was, it was so much more personal and so much more intimate and so much more revealing than a lot of the stuff you saw from World War II. And yet there was some of the same kind of things that were... If you look at a picture from the Civil War or World War One or World War Two or Vietnam or today, I mean, there's guys doing stupid, goofy stuff that they've always done, and you know, so there's a lot of that. But it was fascinating to have that intimate opportunity to to really understand what what soldiers were, what they were finding interesting. Mm -hmm. And so um, I took a divergent path and made a film, made a documentary film called "This Is War: Memories of Iraq," which ended up being. Um, Surprisingly successful, um, won a bunch of film festivals, um, but changed my life again by understanding, um, you know, I went from being sort of an interested in military history to understanding um, how uh, the effects of, of, of war and combat are on, on people as they come back and try to transition, and so got involved in, in really helping as much as I could in, in things around um, reintegration. Um, and became very, very close to my subjects um, to this day. I mean, wonderful human beings. Um, and then uh, shortly another year after that, um, was able to make my second film called Shepherds of Hellman, which was about a group of volunteers who went to Afghanistan. And so that storytelling is, is important. I, I come from a line of storytellers. Um, you know, you could, the edited version it would be another word, but, um, but you know, I mean, it's uh, it, it's. I think that that at the end of the day, we all we all go back to what the Greeks did so well, which is you know, we're all suckers for a good story. And I think you have to, no matter what you're doing, you have to be able to tell a really strong, good story. And uh, <clears throat> that desire to work in film has been something that's stayed with me um, because I, I believe it's the most powerful medium. Um, and so, anyways. Uh, you know, from that, um, my partner uh, went off and did his own thing, and so I, I took um, the National Combat Histories Archive and Lucky Ford Films and took that in a different direction and uh, turned it into a foundation. Uh, it's called Veterans Legacies, and started that in 2010, I guess it was, and started to build a database. You know, right now we've got nine and a half million World War II names in it, so. Um, you know, it's, it's really a cool thing. Um, but, uh, and then Phone Wallet just never quite took off. It, <laughs> it had all the problems. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it makes you hungry and it makes you, uh, you know, you, you, again, if you sort of subscribe to that day of, of people that maybe perversely like to operate without much of a net beneath them. It was exhilarating for me. It was scared the hell out of my wife. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, we start talking about, you know, because I, I, I'm not risk adverse. Um, we start talking about maybe less startups. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd heard that Bill was looking for someone to come and run this place. And so in 2000, actually 2011, I started speaking with, uh, with Bill because I knew he was looking. I was kind of a late entry into the role here. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but uh, met with him and then uh, it was unfortunately right around, it was November of 2011 that Bill's wife Kathy passed away. And so um, that put things off for a few, uh, a few months. And then uh, in March of 2012, after meeting the team and Melissa and everybody here, uh, joined the team in March uh, 3rd of, March 5th of 2012. And, uh, but it's interesting, and I, and I think it's, you know, it's obviously a long description of what I've done in the past, um, but, it, but it, it's, it's really important that um, the perspective that I've, I had when I was in the industry and the perspective that I gained from when I was not in the industry um, came together for my tenure here and, and working for Bill Stoller is um, it's a privilege and he's one of Oregon's great captains. He really is. He's again, the, the thematic theme here is the world's first lead gold certified winery of visionary around environmental um, and sustainability. Um, you know, and, and just a, a great human being grew up in Dayton. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I knew Bill casually um, through uh, you know, my, my tenure when he, he was just getting kind of planting and getting the, mm -hmm. the property going here in 95. But um, it, was, it was great to, uh, to listen to him. And, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd been in more or less in startups since I left Soko Blosser. And when I, it was my, I think my first meeting being hired by Bill to come and run the company, and we're standing looking west, which is that way, and sunset always is beautiful here. We're standing up on this by the tasting room, uh, where the tasting room, the new one, would ultimately be built up on the hill there. And he looks at me and he goes, you know, I want to build companies that last at least 200 years. And my head exploded because <laughs> I'd been in companies for the last 12 where it's about exiting and getting out. And, mm -hmm. and that was really, there was something really just karmically just sort of like, wow, that's okay, I get this. And it was shifting kind of the mindset to go back into um, really being part of the land and being part of understanding that this story is, is, is we're just passengers on this, this great story. And, uh, and Bill has given me a lot of leeway <laughs> to help build the, the company. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, so in, 19, in 2011, uh, Stoller produced 9,100 cases of wine. And in 2019, we produced 165,000 enterprise-wide. So there was some scaling in between there. Um, and, uh, uh, but it, the greatest, I think the greatest thing I've ever gotten to do in my professional career has been to build this team. So. And, uh, and, and it's been what I've, what I've looked for are those people that, um, especially in the leadership roles, that aren't afraid of not having the net below. And, uh, you know, Bill is very hands-off. Um, it's his style. It's why he's successful. I, I think he trusts that, you know, he's got a good, good eye for people. Mm -hmm. He's very collaborative. Um, I love 
collaborating with Bill, but he also, you know, is lets me run the company. And so, um, but I always bring to him those people that, especially for the senior level folks, that you know, this is someone that I want to bring on board. And, and uh, we're I'm always looking for certain kinds of people, and uh, they'd probably tell you that. Um, but it's an adventure. It's uh, it, you know, we we he brought me into scale, mm -hmm. and so scale we did. And uh, and that's been I think that's been the real fun of it has been um, you know being able to take that 9,000 cases and say, okay, where do, you know, and I remember going to Melissa Burr and saying, how much can we make in here? And she's looking at me like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and in 2012, we made 12,000 cases. And I think in 13, we made something like 14. And then in, in 2014, we made over almost 20. And that was too much, and it was so. Then we built this second facility here, uh, which allows us to make a quarter million cases. And uh, we started hiring. You know, uh, early on we had some wonderful people here, and then we've continued to grow. But Melissa Burr, who's I'm sure you've interviewed, mm -hmm. her 20th year now here in 2022. Um, you know, she's fantastic. Um, and but we added Ben Howe. I think you may have just interviewed him from King Estate, joined us in 2015. Jason Tosh, who had been at uh, Anime and uh, Ponzi, became our VP of Vineyard Operations um, um, about five years ago. Bringing really high competency people like that. Um, then we hired people like James Falvey, who was, uh, he joined us in 2013, but before that he'd spent 10 years as the head of season ticket sales for the Portland Trailblazers. And, uh, you know, it's probably one of the few um, wineries in, that has a business, VP of business development. But early on, I saw that as, why don't we? I mean, that's from my tech world, you live and die by biz dev, right? You go and build all those relationships. And mm -hmm. I wanted to build relationships out of, outside of the normal distribution channels. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so, you know, uh, bring in people like that and then... Um, Really, really emphasizing the marketing, you know, I believe more than anything that, you know, every, what do we got, almost a thousand wineries in Oregon, 65,000 labels are for sale every day in the country from all over the world, and, you know, and, and I would, I would submit that, that many, many, many of these Oregon Pinot Noirs are wonderful and they're fairly priced. And as a consumer, you got to pick one. Mm -hmm. So if you're not really good at marketing and storytelling mm -hmm. and branding, you can't scale. And for some folks, scaling is not on the, you know, some people are happy and, and, and they still have strong brands and then the idea is to sell out. Mm -hmm. But um, to get someone to walk into the store and pick you, that's the, mm -hmm. that's the challenge. And so that's always been something I've obsessed on. And I remember back in my Soko Blosser days, just. Probably people thought I was, you know, a creep, but I'd just stand there, kind of hunched over my sho over shopping cart, just in the wine section, just watching why people bought wines, and just, you know, and really realizing that it was label, 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 label. Um, you know, I, I, I will, I will oftentimes say this to be provocative, um, but I'll say I, I, I can't afford to care that much about wine. Um, and I, I and I, there's a true truism to that. I love wine, 
but I can't, as the leader of the organization, I can't care that much about um, the fact that we make wine because <laughs> if you look at 2022, this year with the frost, you look at 2020 with the smoke, you look at changing consumer demographics and tastes and what they want. Um, you know, I, I th I'm the one guy that can't get too close to the product. <laughs> Winemakers have to be, vineyard, grow vineyard managers have to be, people that sell it with their passion have to be, but um, it's important for me to have a perspective that looks beyond and looks to the future. Um, I, <clears throat> I've worked with uh, futurists in the tech companies and I've worked with the futurists now because it's important that we become social scientists and that we're thinking about um, the implications of what's happening in the world because we're all tethered together. And, you know, I was just talking to somebody just before I walked in here about the world. And, you know, I mean, we are, we are in an unprecedented time uh, economically, socially, politically, mm -hmm. you know, um, supply chain issues, the Great Recession, you know, on top of everything else, the, the challenges that have been brought on by the environment with what's been happening in the last three years. Um, so our industry is in a, you know, and then there's all the neo-prohibitionist rules and all that stuff. I mean, <clears throat> we are under attack at all times <laughs> from all directions. Um, and so someone's got to be thinking about that. And I don't want the whole staff to necessarily be thinking about that. Part of it is they've got to be the steady hands on the wheel that are providing, you know, great customer experience. That's the focus is, you know, we're in the hospitality and entertainment business, right? We deliver a great product, but it's also, it's got to be, you know, the philosophical aspect of it has got to be people want to escape and they want to come here to escape. Hmm. You know, life's out there waiting for them. All the bad things, all the challenges, all those things but they just want to be able to escape. Mm -hmm. So that said, um, you know, just, you know, you, you'd asked, you know, what I've, what I've seen change. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's been sort of interesting being bookend or bookmarked a little bit um, where I can say that in 1988, you know, I was, I got to be part of that second wave mm -hmm. of, you know, the Sokol Blossers that were coming on, you know, right after the, the David Letts and the ERAS and those folks, they were part of that. They started in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to be part of that iconic family and that iconic time um, was interesting because, I, you know, we, we were growing up as an industry and, you know, learning, learning how to become a legitimate industry. And, you know, the, all the, uh, I, I think there was a lot of desire to be a lot like a more mature like Burgundy. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a lot of that where, you know, all of the sort of the traditions and, and yet Oregon uniquely building its own traditions around that, but wanting that and seeing that, that the value of that. And, you know, again, in the mid eighties, I think people were still, you know, you say attorneys were drinking, you know, really nice Bordeaux and Burgundies and everybody else was drinking jug wine off the bottom shelf. And that's how it was. But mm -hmm. to watch that sort of evolution of people becoming more sophisticated and, uh, and really getting into the wine scene and getting into wines in general. And then, of course, when Sideways came out, you know, the whole thing got just like next level, right? <laughs> and Oregon Pinot Noirs and all the things that happened, it was wonderful to see. And, uh, but what I see now is uh, when, I, when I came back in 2012, it was still very much, it felt very familiar, even though it obviously was a much bigger industry, much more developed, much more muscular. Um, 
but still, the, in 12, one of the big you know, scandals still was like, you know, they're going to put a Pinot on a screw cap. You know, that was like, whoa, uh, we'll stop the presses, you know. <laughs> And Shehalem, of course, which Bill, which Bill is a co-investor in since 95, and uh, we acquired fully in 2018, um, was a leader in that, was putting things in screw caps. I mean, and um, Harry Peterson Edry had a real vision around that. And it was, you know, he was putting stuff in screw caps. And, and uh, you know, he didn't care what people thought. And it was because he knew it was a better closure. And so he did that. And so, okay. Um, and so we started doing it with the Stoller, especially the, the sub-30 brands. We started doing that. Um, but there's also a pulling the cork romance associated with higher-valued wines, and there's still cultural and all those things. So, but that was, that was some of the stuff that I, you know, was like the big, the big uh, challenge you know, or, or changes in 2012. Now, now it's different. Hmm. I think White Claw, I think... Um, I think what people can afford, um, I think what people care about are different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that all of us have fallen into one giant episode of Portlandia. And it, it, it's, it just feels like all of a sudden um, it's a very different world. And, 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 and I'm not saying it's a bad world. I'm just saying it's a different world. And, um, you know, Okay, boomer is real, and when you think about, you know, the the boomer generation, the, the folks that I was, you know, working with on evolution all those those years ago, and and now, and that group has still got the the buying power along with the Gen Xers, um, much smaller demographic, um, but. <clears throat> You know, I've, I've, I tell the staff all the time is that this, the younger generations don't want to be, they don't want to wear dad's Nike golf shirt. And in, in a way, we have to be careful that this isn't dad's Nike golf shirt, mm -hmm. that, um, that we're listening all the time to her right there. <laughs> um, because in her, because they're the, they're the new consumers and they will be having the buying power. And so if you're building a concept of a 200 year business, You've gotten this, I, I take it as my job as a strategist for the company is to be thinking about what products are we going to be making for the future? And, you know, where is wine going? And who's going to be consuming it? And what's the affordability of it? And to be sure, the cost of goods on wine has gone up and up and up between labor and fruit costs. And I mean, it's just insane. I mean, I've just in these 10 years, it has been tripled in many ways. Fruit costs, everything is just going up and up. So are we pricing ourselves out of the market? You know, can you scale brands like that? That's why, you know, we, in 2018, when we, we acquired Shehalem, I went to Bill and I said, I want to do another thing, which is I want to build a, a sub-brand called Chemistry, which um, Shehalem had already secured that name years ago and was using it for a small label, but I liked it for a, something that we could get out there. But it was that A to Z, ERATH, a sub 20, you know, price point where you can have, take advantage of the bulk wine, oops, <laughs> that used to exist. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, uh, but you could, you could, you could do that sub 20 and not, not have your, your front labels associated with that, which is a common thing. Um, we were pitching this to our distributor and they said at the same time, well, can you, have you ever thought about doing cans? 
And we said, no. And they said, well, there's a big aluminum wave coming. If you guys should think about it. Um, and so we, uh, <clears throat> we decided that we would try it. We dipped a toe and uh, looking at what the success that Ryan Harns and Union had done and, and, and seeing that, yeah, wow, there's some, there might be something. And, and again, more, less about that and more about what are these guys drinking and saying, you know, alternate packaging and all that. It made sense for us to at least try it. And so we've, we launched, uh, we, we designed, conceived, designed, and launched Can Oregon in six weeks. So that's the startup agility that I like to think that, that you know, we've, we've become somewhat, you know, good at. Um, and so, you know, but, uh, so we added that. It was sort of like we weren't even planning on it, but, you know, the, what what is you know, alternate packaging is something that's really important. That we need to be investing in. Bill likes it when we try and do new things like this. As an entrepreneur, you know he's he gets it, and we have a lot of conversations about this is because he's got sons, and they're you know they're drinking White Claw, and they're drinking energy drinks, and they're drinking you know and 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 you know you can get your beer and your cider and your sparkling wine, everything you can get in a can. So. You know, why not have pure wine in a can too? So that was the idea. And so we launched Canned Oregon with chemistry and and then the Shehalen brand all of 2018. We formed the Stoller Wine Group then with the idea that it's, it you know, being able to walk into a, uh, into a distributor with, with two premium and then a, you know, two ultra premium, a premium, you know, sub 20, but a sub 20 and then an alternate package. Mm -hmm versus having to go to four suppliers for that. That gave us some muscle, and it did, and it worked very well, so. Um, yeah, what, what, uh, what questions can I answer? <laughs> I have so many that have come up, come up so yeah. I wanna back up to your, your entree into the industry and your work with Sokol Blosser. Uh, tell me about the sort of initial, you mentioned the initial conversation with Bill Blosser kind of on a whim. Uh, tell me about what your impressions of Oregon wine were at that point and what your impressions were of what Sokol Blosser was doing and what your what your role could potentially be. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed meeting Bill a lot. He was uh, just, just a really nice guy, um, really involved in the state, um, you know, with a, with a lot around water and uh, and but it was it was it was great. I, you know, I looked around, I saw potential everywhere. Um, they, they'd built the, the original tasting room and you know, been there. Um, and it, and it was cool, I liked it, um, had a good energy, the people were wonderful. Um, and I thought, well, I don't, you know, I don't know that I, do I care? I don't know, do I, does wine? Maybe, so. <laughs> but I, I saw opportunity more than the, this, I, I think that's, I've never let the wine sort of drive this, what I do, it's always been the opposite. But I, I saw that, that um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was kind of sleepy, as an industry at that time, and I think that that there was a real opportunity for Soko Blosser to take a leadership role out of there and be dynamic and mm -hmm. you know really really get the crowds and and, and you know all those things kind of came together and you know it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know like I said I only worked with Bill a short period of time and you know they wanted to reorganize and they, were, they had family members involved and they had uh, other partners involved and I think that it was. Bill felt like you know the best thing to do would be at that point was to um, step out and let someone new come in. And Susan came in. And that was sort of the idea. But you know it was 
I, I think that it was, there was an, let's just say there was an opportunity for, um, for change that led to some accelerated um, growth. And uh, Susan is extremely politically gifted. Um, and she was really good with, with talking to banks and talking to partners. And, and uh, so, you know, it, it was wonderful to watch her in action and, and, and the relationships that she developed and brought. And she really is one of the, you know, the state's, state's people of the industry and mm -hmm. you know, she's and she's always had that air about her that you know she's trustable and she's wonderful and smart and um and so you know it was a good partnership and you know we kind of divided and conquered and you know i was more operational and you know marketing driven and you know and she was much more the of the face of the brand which is appropriate of course and um had great vision and so we we worked well together and uh, i enjoyed working with her very much um so, and you know, there's a lot of times it wasn't easy because it's like you're, you know, it's anything that's worth doing isn't easy. It's pain, it can be painful, it's a struggle, but it's ultimately the most rewarding. And, uh, you know, those first two or three years were tough because, you know, it's like, okay, you want to buy barrels or press? You know, it's like, you know, because you, you're trying to find out those ways to continue to scale up and get that deferred maintenance taken care of and stuff like that. So, you know, sometimes it was really hard and frustrating, and uh, stuff would break, and it's like, okay, what are we gonna do? But, um, but that I think I look back, and that's some of the f most fun I ever had in the industry. So, yeah. You you mentioned that you're you you started there right as DDO was was becoming a reality. People we've talked with in the past, that's kind of a big benchmark moment for Oregon Wine, as you mentioned, a big a big deal. So, in the years following that, what? changed about the industry? What changed about your ability to, uh, you mentioned supply chain being a big issue in the early days. What, what changed about your ability to, to build, to, to scale, to find materials, to find people? Uh, how much did that change before you left Sokolblosser? Well, I think, I think, um, I think that DDO was so significant because, you know, they, they legitimized our industry and they, they helped to create demand uh, for the industry and for and curiosity, both locally and nationally and internationally, it's like what's going on here. So you you, you saw an uptick in people coming around, and um, you know it's like there were. I mean, there were. We had wonderful you know days when you know the place was so packed. You know, even early on, it started to you could you could see that there was you know the. And, and Soka Blaster was right there off 99. Right? We're really lucky to have the proximity. It was wasn't one of these things where you had to go down the gravel road, you know, like, is that a customer? No, they were right there, so it was great. Um, so, you know, we were able to really maximize that. And I think that, you know, between Susan and just, just being such a good spokesperson for the industry and Sokol Blosser, um, and then, you know, some of the marketing and sales initiatives that we were putting in place allowed us, and some really good vintages that came along too, good reviews, things like that. Mm -hmm. John Haw was the winemaker at the time. Uh, you know, it was it was good. It was good to see the um, that incremental sort of movement. It didn't all happen at once, but you could fill the building of things. Mm. Um, and uh, I think we started the concert series in '94, '93 or '4. Um, <laughs> first couple were rough. I mean, I'll tell you, they were rough. A lot to figure out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And uh, learning that it's really important to uh, 
you know, have the concerts end when they're supposed to, and so the, the roads are ready so that you let the cars out to the road and stuff like that. Uh, but, but ultimately, by the end, they were insanely successful. I think I was talking to Alex when I first came back, and he said they were still getting calls 20 years later, you know, mm-hmm. are you going to do any more concerts? Mm-hmm. Because people, I mean, it's just something that people associate, you know, being a beautiful vineyard, like a Soka Blaster, we built an amphitheater that was gorgeous. The stage where the new tasting room is now is where the stage was. So I always kind of smile when I drive by. But, um, but you know, we had John Denver. We had big names like that. But, but again, when you can associate your name to that, that helps to create real pull. Mm-hmm. You know, at Stoller, one of the things we've done is we've, we, uh, we have our webcams are uh, on all four stations. So every morning if you're eating your breakfast or sitting down for dinner and you have the TV on, let's go out to Stoller and see what's happening. I mean, it's that that kind of mm-hmm. you know marketing and branding that that is really important um, to you know to remind people. And back then, the concerts were wonderful because we were bringing out again three thousand people at a time. That was the limit that we could have. But you know, five times a year, five times a summer, and they're all coming like Edgefield does now. Mm-hmm. Or, but you're bringing people and they're being exposed, and you're creating your brand so that when they're out at the grocery store, oh, I went to their concert, I love their wine. You know, and uh, you know that's how it worked, and we saw real momentum from that, and it really, really grew. And they were, they were logistical um, challenges, and there was, there was, it was, you know, it was. I would, I would say they were completely worth it because they helped elevate the brand. Mm-hmm. They put us on a different plane, and uh, you know, I, I think there was a kind of as I was leaving, there was a desire to end them. <laughs> Because they are, they are, they are, they are a big challenge. But you know, I think that they did a very effective job, mm-hmm. and uh, so. But but you know, we had to figure out creative ways to you know continue to. Um, you know, I mean, Oregon in the '90s was still you know was, was still a big struggle. I mean, it just just because Druin was here wasn't a guarantee of anything. You know, and you're still competing against. You know. Everything now. The price points were very different back then. Like I said, you could get really good Pinot for nine bucks, or less, seven bucks. You know. Mm-hmm. But now, obviously, it's completely different. What were some of the other kind of big marketing sort of takeaways you had during that time? Obviously, you're talking about building a, both scaling a brand and building awareness around it. What did you learn about marketing wine specifically that especially paid off when you came back to Stoller? Well, it's you know it was it was it was a little different back then. I think. Um, well, I, I guess what's, what what I learned is that people want to hear a good story. I don't think that changes what, whatever you're doing. I, I that, you know, like I said, we could we could shift to something else right now, and, but you got to be able to tell the story. You got to be authentic, you know. And it's it's working for high integrity people is really makes it easy, you know. Because I've you know, in the, my wine experience, um, I can say that the, the the two people that I've spent the most time with, Bill and Susan, are um, Really high integrity people, right? Mm-hmm. So it's easy to tell a story that isn't doesn't come across as BS, right? So you can you, you start to tell that. And uh, I remember we did this really fun campaign where um, we had two models uh, dress up like hippies standing in front of a microbus, and we 
and it was representing Susan and Bill Blosser, Susan's uncle Bill Blosser, when they arrived here, you know, back in those early days looking at the property. And it was, and it was a big hit because it was sort of authentic and it's who they were. They, they were just some, you know, starry-eyed, you know, people that wanted to come up and be part of the scene and, you know, and, and, uh, and I think that there's, that's authentic. So, you know, um, never been a big fan of just, you know, just creating just noise. So it's like, you know, you want to, you want to, you, you look at the enduring brands and why they're successful and you say, okay, well, what are they doing that's, that makes it? Well, they start with a great product, but they also start with a great company. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Apple, you know, is just, why are they, where are they, where they are? Well, everybody knows they had a visionary genius leader who saw into the future and now they make products that you got to have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny with Tesla, I think about Musk, and he's crazy, but he's also those, you know, he's, you know, as with our involvement with Evergreen, he's a Howard Hughes, he's, he's a Steve Jobs. He's those people that they just think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also make really visionary, enduring products. Well, we make products that are, in this industry, we make products that are legacy-based, right? They've been around forever, but, and everybody's been telling the same story, but you have to find your edge. You have to figure out what that story is that, that gives you a leg up over everybody else's story, mm-hmm. right? And you can't live and die by your scores. It helps, you know, and you'll see brands get really hot and then sometimes they'll fall off because their scores are hot, 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 and then they're not, and then, so if you, you gotta find something more foundational and enduring than that, and so you've gotta, and again, it's, it's, you can have a great story, but if you don't know how to tell the story, you know, if you put out if you put out your story on a six point font, forty page document, there's someone in prison that has time to read that. But um, for the rest of us, what is it? Fifteen seconds. You guys watch something for fifteen seconds. Mm-hmm. So you, can you tell a story in fifteen seconds? You damn well better. So a story is a story, no matter no matter who's watching it or how is, if you can tell a compelling story and it's something that you've got to be relatable to. Mm-hmm. You've got to want to be part of it. And I learned that, I think, you know, it, it, you really have to be, you know, uh, you have to be willing to, to be interested in humans and, you know, what it is that motivates them. Um, I remember, you know, having customers come in at, and, putting the same exact wine in two different types of glass and saying, hey, these are some blends we're working on. Which one do you like better? Pick them up, look at them. Oh, I like this one. Why? It's just a better tasting wine. No, it's in heavier glass. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just these things that you learn about the human condition. You know, we, we do these blind tastings of five wines, double blind, and then say, okay, we're gonna give you five wines, and we're gonna give you five new wines, five and double bagged, Oh, I like this one the most. Okay, great. You know, here's here's five, three, four. You know. Then bring the new ones in with the labels. Oh, that's my. That, I like this wine the best. Same exact wines, mm-hmm. completely different order. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that, that as you as you kind of do your market studies and you get to know how people buy, then you it should inform how you market and sell to them. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think we all want to feel good about a purchase. You know, I want to I want I want to feel like a. You know, that was the whole idea behind evolution was I was sitting at a, the concept that came to me was I was at a party and I was watching people, um, the, the guy, the, he was a cinematographer and he lived up in the West Hills and he had, um, 
he, had, he was kind of it was a beautiful people party, and uh, and he was known to be quite the wine guy. And so, as I as I was watching people come in, I was sitting there this right by the doorway, and I was watching people. And these couples would come in, and they would come in, and they would take their bottle of wine, and they would say, and and what they were really saying is. Am I okay? Do you accept me? Did I make a good decision? And you know, it, the whole Kabuki theater would come in, and they, because you knew that they went out and they went to like Liner Nelson or they went someplace, and they said, "Give me up this guy." It's like I don't know. <laughs> it's like did I do okay? And then he'd look at it and go, "Oh my gosh, roll my eyes," you know. And then they, you know, and there was all this stuff that would happen, right? I mean, and and this repeated itself over and over again. And I said, "Man, we." So I started thinking about that, and I thought, you know, what would be cool? Would be like back in the '70s at, at you know Studio 54 when when like you'd see the line around the building to get in, and then all of a sudden two beautiful people would come in, and they're like, "Oh, you get right, you know, you have to wait in line. You're too cool." Mm -hmm. I thought, well, what would happen if we made a wine like that? So that sort of the, the psychology of it was, um, it's like if you come in with a bottle of Evolution, you don't have to say anything. People know you're cool, <laughs> right? It's like. I'm going to walk in, I don't care what you think, man. I walk into that beautiful people party, it's like evolution. It's like, oh. <laughs> right? You're the, person, you're the person everybody wants to be around because you're cool. And, you know, you've got good taste, you found a cool wine at a good price, and you're unapologetic about it, you're not caught up in all the theater of the mm -hmm. wine. So I think the theater of the wine is, um, you know, you play on that, but you also don't get caught in that trap too much. Because I think that, uh, I think it's very easy to fall into the into the. If you look at the tradition, some of the traditions, like like we're looking at across our country right now, I think if, if it's very easy to to sort of assign that to, an exclusivity. That exists and all it represents, and I think that that if wine is to be successful in the future, it has to be inclusive, mm -hmm. much more inclusive than it, maybe it is now, and that's you know, all the different barriers you think about social and economic and just what wine says, you know, dad's Nike golf shirt, right? So um, sort of that, that stereotypical, you know, demographic that has historically been able to afford wine. Well, I don't think that that's going to be a, a blueprint for success going forward, personally. I think you got to be way, way ahead of that. And if part of that's how you market and brand it and position it. Part of that's also is what's the consumer want. So, on the note of evolution, uh, it's interesting to me because Oregon has been so long trying to be taken seriously in wine and, and trying to make Burgundian wines. And so, what made you think that the time was right to launch a wine that was cool rather than than serious? Because I think there's a lot of people who don't give a damn about that stuff, right? And I think again, I keep going back to you. You, you know, they were their right to have that need to pander and to sell to that group of people that, that will drive Oregon Pinot. Oregon Pinot Noir is the thing. It doesn't mean you can't also have some fun. Mm -hmm. And that there also isn't a whole bunch of people out there that would like to have access that maybe aren't Pinot Noir people. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they just want to have a really easy wine that they can drink and have. And I think that that's sort of the balance, right? You've got to be able to say, from an economic, let's take it purely from an economic position. Are you will, really ready and willing to walk away from one of your biggest cash cows, which was your literature gal and your reason program? And if you didn't want to be associated or assigned to that anymore, but you want to, but you still want that revenue, 
then create a package, create a product that that is in demand and try it. And I think that that's, you know, do you want to be Burgundy number two or do you want to be Oregon, whatever that means. And Oregon Pinot Noir is, to be sure, is that's, that's why we exist. And I don't think we should ever, you know, not embrace that, but it's how we embrace it could be, you know, open for ne mm -hmm. negotiation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of schools of thought. There are people right here that would love to see me fall through a trap door and never come back again. But I, I don't think that that's fair because I think that, that you know, there was, there's been a lot of things around conjunctive labeling and purity laws and things like that that I am vehemently in opposition to because I just don't think it is forward-looking. I think it's rear looking in the rear view mirror. And if we look at some of the things that have happened nationally recently about going backwards, um, I think we need to be careful of that. So um, anyways, I mean, uh, you know, people want more choices. Mm -hmm. And that's not to pollute. And I'm not in favor of polluting the brands or doing anything like that. I'm just saying that, that wineries that want to do that should be encouraged and welcome to do that. And wineries that want to try new things should be welcome to do that too. I think it's the, and, and because, because ultimately it's not up to the winery, it's up to the consumer. Mm -hmm. The consumer will tell you if it's a good idea or bad. Mm -hmm. You know, look, it was a risk launching uh, evolution, but the, ultimately the consumer voted and said it was a good idea. And I think that, you know, if you talk to the blossers, I think that they'll tell you it was probably a pretty good idea too. Um, you know, so sometimes you just got to be willing to put it out there. I mean, that's part of being an entrepreneur is, mm -hmm. is accepting and welcoming failure. Failure will happen. Um, I'm a big believer in failure. Um, you want to you wanna learn? Learn by failing. Failing is a key. I mean, you know, not just doing stupid things, but trying things, being able to put yourself out there and saying, what do we learn? And not having that punitive culture where you made a mistake but saying, okay, we tried that. Mm -hmm. What what did work? Was there anything there, or should we just walk away from it? And I think that matters. I, I don't think I don't think it matters what industry you're in. I think that's you know, that's just a you know, mm -hmm. being being in a culture that allows you to try and fail is where you should be, and not in a company or a country, you know, a company where failure is discouraged. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think if you want to advance your brand and be really dynamic in your growth, you have to do that. You have to be willing to do it. And you have to also be willing to be really realistic about your station in life and uh, your perspective. Mm -hmm. Which is why I like having lots of different people in our organization, lots of younger people, because I listen to them. And I want to know what they're thinking, because I can't be effective. I can't be working on that 200-year plane if, I don't, if I'm not tapped into them, if I'm just going, well, here's how it's always been. Here's how it's always going to be. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, we might even be able to get away with that for a while. But ultimately, I'll, I'm just failing. Mm -hmm. That is the wrong kind of failure. So, so talk about kind of your between wine time. I'm, I'm curious about the, obviously, the Veterans Legacy Project, something you're pretty well known for. Uh, tell me about the learning curve for you there, both in terms of creating the product, but also what your kind of main takeaways were from the people you worked with. What were the biggest, the biggest hidden stories, the biggest sort of uh, eye-opening moments for you in creating those projects? 
Are you talking about the films or just in general? The films specifically, but in general. Yeah, I tell you, you know, I mean, it's, you know, just, if we just pick on, uh, just, we were, uh, we were, we were going to do uh, a presentation at Dayton High School, just Dayton right here across the street, um, and have a World War II veteran was going to come and speak, and uh, he up and died, so, uh, like two days before, so, <laughs> crap. So I put the word out and found, you know, let, let the teacher know and said, hey, is there, maybe do you guys know of a World War II veteran? So one of the, one of the girls said, I think my great granddad was, I'm not sure, but I think he was. So he shows up and <laughs> he was with his wife and one of those big giant motorized wheelchairs and he's standing there and, you know, he was just funny and, and I'm thinking, I, you know, I don't know if this guy was even World War II, I, you know, we're just going to find out together. <laughs> And uh, it turns out, uh, I'll abbreviate the story greatly, but it turns out he was, uh, he was one of the first men to land on Omaha Beach. He was a landing craft operator, and he, before the, the actual invasion started, he was delivering combat engineers. And he lived in Dayton his entire life, and almost nobody knew that. Mm -hmm. um, what I learned about um, just in general, it's, I think it's, it's the takeaway is, is that if you take the time to listen to people, um, it doesn't matter, they don't have to have been in combat. If you just take the time and interact and hear someone's story, that your life becomes better for that. I can confirm that. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and I think that that's why I think documentary filmmaking should be taught you know, um, and it's one of the motivators for Mighty Endeavor is, is, is in getting kids to be curious, students, people to be curious about others without it, you know, just making, involving them at all, but just simply understanding and getting to know your subjects. Mm -hmm. uh, people that have been in combat, that's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a life-changing thing. I mean, I, I, you know, especially 10 years ago when there was a lot more of them alive, and I knew all these World War II veterans. They were my, my all my adopted granddads. Um, but you know, they all they all uh, they were in the service two three years. But their life to the day they died was defined by that time, mm -hmm. and who they became mm -hmm. was very foundational based on that time. Um, Bill Seitz, a B twenty four pilot, it's had such a huge impact on me. But he was picking little pieces of plexiglass out of his scalp um, till the day he died because the uh, ME-109 shot out the plexiglass above him and it embedded in his scalp. But when you met Bill, he would always stand up, take his hat off, no matter who he was, and he'd say, how are you, Bill? And he'd say, every day's a gift. Right? Well, that stayed with me. I taught my kids that, mm -hmm. just by spending time and listening. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, my biggest frustration with this is I don't, you know, I, I don't have, there's not enough time in the day to to do it, you know, I mean, it's, because I do it, I, I'm a geek for it, and I love it, and uh, the stories just, I mean, these, and these stories, many of these stories just fade into obscurity when they die, and you never get, to, you never, no one ever really knows. Mm -hmm. So, what you're doing with the, with the archives is, it's wonderful. I mean, I, we suck as a nation, because we should have, right after World War II, we should have, we should have interviewed as many of those veterans as we could, as a nation, mm -hmm. right? 
and no one did that. No college, no organization, nobody has really ever done that. It wasn't until the, after Private Ryan came out in the 90s that really any real efforts took place. And that's too bad. But, you know, you talk to these kids from Iraq and Afghanistan and you realize that they're really, you know, they come back and into a world that, in World War II at least, you know, we were grateful for the victory. Now it's sort of like, yeah, it's kind of inconvenience. I mean, there's a lot of flag saluting and stuff like that, or one party or another trying to um, capitalize on that. But um, the reality is, that these are these are people that are impossibly young, that have gone over and seen things that no one should see, and they have to come back and expect to sort of. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to do a better job of uh, of helping them. Not not you know, one one of the veterans said, "You don't give them a hand out, you give them a hand up." But, but giving them opportunities to come back, they've served in ways that um, that we can't imagine. And so, those are those are my takeaways. Is that is that every story is is important. And again, if you sit down at an airport and start talking to someone, you'll you'll learn something. And I think it makes us better, you know, in the business side too, because you know um, we've all been through a lot. And. Um, you know, it's it's having empathy is is hopefully you know, and this what what you guys do and to a degree what I do is uh, with the film side is 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 helping to to understand that unlock that a little bit is um, if if people have, take the time to listen you know a lot of times they'll learn. Mm -hmm. So on that part of the project, what are the moments or the accomplishments that you're proudest of with your work with veterans, and what comes next in that side of things for you? Oh boy, um, <clears throat> you know, I think I'm really proud that both the films were uh, adopted by the Veterans Administration on a national level as their official OIF, OAF training films that they show family members. So, yeah, so that, that, I mean, that shows that, you know, I'm, I'm really big into non-political stuff in terms of, you know, I, I don't want one party or another trying to seize their stories. Those stories are their stories, and I think when you do that, it becomes relatable. Mm -hmm. But the second you try to put a political agenda on something, then people become suspicious of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's true for the wine industry, too, for any product. You know, I mean, there, there are certain wineries, you can say certain wineries right now, and you may be able to assign a political view to it. Um, you know, they're probably lean this way or that way. And it's like, okay, well, you know, that's their right as a business. Um, but in telling a film, a documentary, the only person that has a, is entitled to a political opinion is the subject. Now, they can say whatever they want because as the filmmaker, I'm sitting back and I just, just want them to tell their story. And then <laughs> you knit it together as best you can in a, in a non-political way. But, um, you know, that's, I, I think that that's a, that's a big takeaway. Um, you know, um, the proudest moment would be that. Um, and the other proudest moment, you know, I, I mean, well, I've had a million humbling moments. Um, and, and I've had several humbling moments from the film where veterans have told me that um, their being in the film saved their lives. So. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm way more humbled than I am proud of that. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's just like, because I know these people really well, and I know for them to say that is, 
but you know, we got to take the film on the road, especially this is war, and uh, we would go, we, were, we did 20 cities in Oregon, and uh, we would, live audience, and we got all the movie theaters to just allow us to do a free screening, and, and they were always packed. Uh, but the, the payoff was at the end of the film when five or six of the guys from the film would walk on stage, and it was electrifying. Um, because they just watched what they did, and now here they are walking on stage, and you can ask them questions. And uh, it was cathartic for them, but it was also so many families came up to me afterwards and just said, my son or daughter, had, that's kind of what they had gone through. And, mm -hmm. you know, this allows them to talk about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that was, the, that was an unattended, I was just trying to be a historian telling a story. And when this happened, I realized that it was, you know, the importance of us continuing to tell these stories, because you don't hear about it. Mm -hmm. Or you'll hear about it on, you know, one one news station or another news station, and it's politicized, mm -hmm. and they become pawns in the in the conversation, the narrative, whether actually human beings or the son or the daughter of parents or they're a wife or a husband, <clears throat> you know. And I think that's really important that we don't forget that. It's amazing what happens when you preserve a story and share it. Like you said, the unintended parts of things that happen is pretty pretty incredible. The, the people who find the story and find ways to relate to it are, it's pretty amazing. It is, it is, and it's the re relatability, I think that's the key, is that, um, you know, sometimes you can, you may think on the surface you have anything in common, and then you find out that you do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's, that engagement is really important. Switching gears from that and kind of coming back to, to Stoller, you talked very, very well about sort of your role here and some of the big accomplishments here. I'm curious about, specifically about the challenges of scaling. You talked about, that's a lot of growth in a, in a decade. Um, what were the biggest challenges for you taking, kind of looking at the horizon of, of that being an eventual goal? And what were the kind of the, the biggest steps for you along the way, for you and the company along the way of getting to the size you are now? Well, <clears throat> Bill's a wonderful partner in these things. And so, um, you know, we talked, uh, Part of this is the, I guess, you know, my, my, one of my things that has guided me um, has been my love of, of strategy and through military history. Um, but so I see it as a big, like, invasion, you know, a big <laughs> operation. And, uh, and you need certain milestones to be able to do what you need to do. And so you've got to be thinking it's a chess game. You've got to be thinking several years, multiple years ahead, you know, again, if you bolt everything in that 200-year vision, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's easy to scale from 12,000 to 18,000 cases in your existing infrastructure, but when you got to start building buildings, that's when things get, you know, you know your, your fruit supplies, all those mm -hmm. kinds of things. You're talking about things that take eight years, you know, to get from planted in the ground to out in the market. So those are long-term things. and so. It was really, it was two things. It was one is sitting down with Bill and saying, this is what we're thinking, how do you feel? You know, and then Bill giving his always incredibly insightful uh, input. And then two, it's, it's making sure that you're hiring in advance the staff that you need so that, you know, you're not like, okay, now we got this wine, what are we gonna do? <laughs> but you, you're, you're putting them in place in advance so that they're ready to help you scale and so, um, when you look at our hiring, it's, it's been sort of in advance of the scaling. So they're you know, bringing in a Ben Howe or a Jason Tosh. Um, and then it's really very much, you know, Bill says something all the time that I'm a huge believer in too, which is 
um, he'll say, you know, we are all presidents of our own departments. And, you know, Pat Cox taught me that, you know, it's owner versus renter. But it's the same kind of thing, right? The same concept, which is, you know, um, this isn't a, uh, a top-down organization. I, I try to run this really very flat. Um, as you scale, that obviously has its own set of, of, of issues. But um, so I've got nine vice presidents, and we run the company through them. They run the company through their management team, and then we all bolt back up to the strategy. Um, but, you know, those, those VPs are, you know, they have a lot of uh, they have a lot of leeway to make decisions, and uh, we have authorities matrix, and we have things like that influence and decide. We do we work all those things because it's uh, you know yeah, I, I think all this stuff is full contact and fun, and uh, it's not for everybody. Um, you know, it's uh, ride loose and hold what was it ride fast and hold the reins loose. Um, but there's also got to be structural foundational strategy that maps to that. And again, you know, it's, um, I met a guy by the name of Don Tebow um, in, during the Cusin days. And he worked for the Reagan administration. Then he worked for LexisNexis and Kodak Films and possibly three-letter agency, possible. Um, but he, you know, again, these are people that have been foundational to me. And Don's still a friend to this day. I love talking to him. But um, he came out as a consultant. And uh, we're talking to him one day, and he said, what business are we in? And you know, we're a bunch of startup guys sitting around. People were saying, you know, all kinds of things. He goes, no, we're in the possibility business. And so I've taken that, and uh, I always ask the staff, what business are we in? And you know, they always look at me like, idiot, we're in the wine business. I was like, yes, but we're also in the sales and marketing business. And we're in the data brokering business, and we're in the hospitality business, we're in the entertainment business. We're in all these businesses. We're not just in the wine business. And I think it's a danger to think that you're just in the wine business because um, you're not. Um, and you know, I, I, the, the time that I, I rolled out information brokering platform, I think may have been too far, but, but it really is kind of true. I mean, we're, we bring. You know, we bring information in and we disseminate information out. And uh, in a way, that's kind of, if you strip it down and take away all the, the romance of the wine itself, I mean, it's, it's kind of what you end up with, mm -hmm. is you're exchanging information mm -hmm. and products. So, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you got to have people that, are, that, are, that believe in being agile. You know, I mean, we, I run this like a startup. I, you know, I, I didn't realize how much of a, a you know, a drug that was for me. Uh, I know I loved it at Soka Blaster, but I didn't. It didn't really become clear to me that, that this is what really gets me going mm -hmm. until Cusin and working with serial entrepreneurs. And so when I came here, kind of to answer your question, the the background of wine com com combined with the possibility business mm -hmm. and looking at um, what we could do with Stoller with a very willing entrepreneurial owner who happens to own a winery but makes his money doing something else was a perfect fit for me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I always think about Patton's breakout, uh, you know, at, uh, after Normandy and attacks in four, four directions across France. And it's like, that's never been done before. But that's the kind of stuff that I look at and saying, okay, well, we can, we can do anything we want to. We can, we can go in any direction, but we have to have a plan. We have to have the right people. Mm -hmm. And then we have to be able to execute.
and all those things have to happen. And so um, planning and execution, you know, every plan, you know, breaks at the point of contact. But you have to be willing to, you know, we went into 2020. If you think about this, um, you know, this industry sailed off of a, a couple of surplus years into 2020. And it was, uh, <laughs> you know, it was business as usual, right? There was bulk wine supply. There was, you know, business was great. You know, I remember in February of, of 2020, we had our staff, our uh, management retreat, you know, and one of the things I always ask, what could go wrong? <laughs> and we had all kinds of stuff up there, but we missed global pandemic. We missed tasting rooms being shut down for, you know, a chunk of the year. We missed uh, the uh, restaurant industry basically evaporating. You know, we missed all that. And yet somehow we were able to navigate all that. Um, by being really creative and um, and staying engaged with our customers um, and doing right things, uh, supporting uh, out of staff restaurant workers, doing things that mattered, letting like, checking in with folks, letting them know that we were thinking about them too, um, and all those things allowed us to be very successful that year, uh, even in spite of uh, all the things that happened. And that's a tribute to the team. I mean, they just you know we didn't furlough anybody. That was the first thing that happened was. I said, we're not furloughing anybody, but I may be asking you to do different things, and I'm going to push you in your boundaries, but you're not losing your job. Mm -hmm. Nobody's getting, nobody's going home. Mm -hmm. And that was my promise to them, and we innovated the hell out of this thing. It was, uh, I know there was, uh, in, in May of 2020, they were, when they were going to open up the taste rooms again, and they were talking about... Um, there was talk of issuing a circulating a waiver. I don't know if you'd heard about that, but uh, to get, you know, basically when customers are going to come up to release them in the event that they got COVID, mm -hmm. to release mm -hmm. and hold the wineries harmless. And, mm -hmm. um, so for me, I, I, I thought, you know, when you talk about brand, you know, I, I don't want our brand to be associated with death, right? So, so you're saying if you sign this, come up here and you know, basically. <laughs> hold us harmless from death. I, I just didn't think it was a great message, but I understood that the intent, and the intent was to say, you know, it's, it, you know, we're in a pandemic and all that. So we, we decided to take a different approach. So we did, a, I, I, I went to the staff and I said, why don't we just do it in a musical? Let's just make it musical. So we reduced a thing called Welcome Back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was Welcome Back to the place that you know and love with a few new rules. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a big hit. So. But again, it's storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. The storytelling versus how you tell that, how do you communicate? Here's a waiver sign, or watch this video, and it's exciting and fun, and the message is the same. Mm -hmm. There's new rules. What would you rather have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw that video. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it was very well done. It was very well done. Well, you know, we have a, we have a dedicated in-house video production team. And that was their first job. And uh, yeah, I, I wrote I wrote it, uh, wrote the lyrics, and uh, my son actually recorded the music. And we got Haley Johnson, who was on American Idol a few years ago. She sang it. And uh, our at the time our head of events, uh, Eileen McCartan, was uh, finished had years before finished fourth in the world in Irish dancing. So she was the dancer. And uh, Brendan Osborne and Nate Mallory were the uh, videographers and the whole thing just came together and you know I just let them it's like here's my concept here's the lyrics 
and they just took it from there. And uh, I, yeah, it was it was great. You know, I mean, it's it's there are moments when you can do something like that. You know, I, I think you have to be have your antennas up all the time mm -hmm. about looking for those moments. Mm -hmm. Something you mentioned a couple times in the interview is the, the the notion that you're in the wine business, but you're in also, like you said, other businesses as well, specifically hospitality and entertainment. I'm curious in the time between you being a Sokol Blosser and coming here, and then the, you're, during your time here, what are the changes in the hospitality and entertainment part of the wine industry that you've seen? What have the biggest, like what, what have your biggest sort of evolutions have to had to be in that sphere? Well, you know, I, I look back at it, and there was still a novelty, at least in my, from my perspective. There was there, there's, there was more of a there was still a, a bit of a, a novelty um, back then in the '90s to wine tasting. It was still new. It was exciting, and lots of people came, and they, I think they had a lot of fun. But um, it, it, it felt like you had a lot more new people coming in, um, or the people that did come in were. You know, it, it, wine tasting was still going to four or five wineries and swirling, and you know, this Pinot is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, but it was, you know, it was, it was, in in some ways, it was. Um, we were growing up together. The industry and the consumer were growing up together. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. um, and just in the ten years I've been here now, it feels like um, it's it's shifted even more into this destination. It's like people are coming to one winery, maybe two, and then they want to do an activity. Um, you know, I, I just I, I see it happening more and more like that. I think that obviously the level of knowledge and sophistication is greater. Um, but I also think there's a lot of young people who just want to come out and be somewhere cool like this. And uh, your expectations for them, you know, it's like you want to be educated. You want to always be. I think I think you have to be now. Uh, you have to understand that people may just want to just get away, and this is just a really cool place to come and hang out and maybe have a little wine. But it's you know maybe they don't want to be educated. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Mm -hmm. I mean you know it's like you have to be willing to to look at that. So, I mean I told the, the the staff when I first got here. Uh, my mantra uh, that I developed sort of came to me uh, as I watched, you know, our success the first couple of years when we opened the new tasting room. I, I got here in uh, March of 12. We opened the new tasting room in uh, in September of 12, and we it was so big. It seemed so big that we're thinking, oh my God, you know, we'll never fill this. And by that next summer, it was like we need a bigger tasting room. You know. Um, but watching, you know, and, and we had we had the reputation of Stoller State Park, and because we, mm -hmm. and the reason we had that was, you know, um, you know, Bill and I are very very aligned on this, which is wine is for everybody. And sometimes everybody may not, you know, may not be what the wine industry thinks it should be, but I think it's for everybody. If you want to continue to grow your base, mm -hmm. and, but I, I, I told the staff, I said most people, you know, it's like. I would say that most people have kids that scream, dogs that poop, and budgets. That's most people. Most people don't come driving up in their Ferraris and they're, you know, whatever, and they're, you know, they get out and I'll take four cases and then they leave and, you know, that's not most people. Most people have budgets. Most people have kids. Most people have dogs. So bring them up here, right? So, it's, it, but it, it's 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 a different kind of thing, and now it's, now it's a destination. We're it was a wine tasting, five wineries, four wineries, go get blasted, whatever. And now, and especially with the pandemic, now we're next level, and I think people want to just escape. Mm -hmm. 
and let's let's give them that escape. Let's let's give them a luxury experience. Let's make them feel special. Mm-hmm. Why not? What's wrong with that? But it's it's more entertainment. It's more, you know, it's it's less about you know this is our oak aged. You know, it's the pH and the acidity. Nobody goes damn about that stuff. It's like come up and right. I, I just I feel like you know if they do, we can tell them that. Mm-hmm. But most people don't care. Most people want to come up and enjoy themselves and escape that nightmare out there. So give them that. That's brand loyalty. I guess it's, it's sort of two questions, but two parts of the same question. So looking ahead, what comes next for you and for store? And on a larger scale, what do you see coming next for Oregon wine in general? Well, I think we're going to continue on our 200-year plan. Um, so what comes next for me in solar is, uh, you know, uh, continuing to uh, to build the team, to continuing to um, expand our empire. Um, we're very fortunate that we work for a, a gentleman that that likes it and likes likes the growth, um, which fits me very well. It keeps me young and excited. Um, surrounding myself with passionate people that, that share our values. Um, and you know, and, and having our antennas up, I, I think that we again, what comes next for Stoller is um, is is being able to anticipate as best we can the ever rapidly changing market conditions, and uh, and making sure that we're innovating and uh, and you know as best we can and, and listening. Um, Melissa Burr, when I first joined Stoller, um, we sat down had a big conversation and. Uh, what we agreed on is that we would never compromise on quality. So that was going to be the one thing that never changed. Everything else could change, but quality can't. And that's been our North Star. Um, and, you know, it's uh, as long as people are drinking these wonderful wines, we're going to keep making them. And But we'll also be looking at how are they delivered? What kind of packaging? How are they sold? You know, all those things have got to be constantly explored because... You know, uh, I mean, Robert Parker years and years ago was saying that the three-tier system was going to be blowing up at some point. And he's right. I mean, it's you can see it. I mean, ba- basically, they're getting 30% to be delivery boys now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's very little selling anymore of the products. It's mostly your teams are selling. Mm-hmm. So that's changing, and you know, and technology changes. And you look at you know, you look at all Moore's law, and you look at all these things that are happening. It's like it's rapidly like changing all the time, right? So again, being good futurists, and I, you know, if you talk to any any of the team here, they'll tell you that it's like I'm talking to them all about being good futurists, because we have to be. We have to be social scientists, historians, futurists, to be able to help and understand what's happening, because it's so dynamically changing right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look from George Floyd on, what has happened in our country, mm-hmm. and it's it's creating divisions. And it's like, do you sell to just one side? Do you sell to both sides? What do you do? How do you market? Those are all real questions. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you have to make good quality wines at a fair price. And uh, so, so, you know, you're threading the needle all the time. You know, alternative packaging, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, glass is, is I mean, we, we were finding the glass, I mean, this year with the supply chain issues, whew, right? And glass is shot up in price, and, and we're lucky enough that we have all we need, but there's many that didn't. So you're looking at that. No. All these things are real and all these things. So for what's, what's new for Stoller is to continue to uh, be ahead of, as best we can, of where things are going 
and uh, we pride ourselves in being those innovators and, and being agile enough to be able to pivot when we need to. But continue, I mean, the bottom line is continue to grow and produce wonderful wines that people want. Mm -hmm. And uh, what the, however that looks like in the future, um, you know, but being cognizant that that could, some of those things could morph and change. Mm -hmm. What about for Oregon wine in general? Um, you know, hopefully just continued growth. I mean, you know, it's, uh, I, I think that Oregon wine in general is, is coming to a lot of crossroads. Um, you know, you've got some political maneuvering within the industry. I don't think that's a secret. Um, you've got, um, during the pandemic, it was, it was, I think a little bit shocking to see how much, uh, M&A took place uh, during 2020 when everybody else was in survival mode and all of a sudden large, large amounts of land and producing vineyards were scooped up by PE, mm -hmm. private equity. Um, I think that the amount of, as, as California continues to become maybe in some ways less sustainable, um, Oregon looks very attractive. Um, I think that Oregon is changing whether they want to or not. I think you're, you're seeing some of the old guard want to vigilantly sort of protect it and you're seeing some of these large producers coming in and they don't they don't share the same sort of you know visions and you know and, and I think that's some of those sort of the tectonic shifts that you're seeing within the industry at the same time you know we you know we've had three down years in a row now and you wonder what that's going to mean you know uh, the viability of I mean, there's you're getting into those generational moments where uh, those first owners uh, the kids have watched mom and dad you know, do a job of passion, but not necessarily make the money they hoped. And are the kids going to, you know, do that, or, or is there going to be more and more wineries for sale? And who's going to be the buyers of those? And why are they? So this industry is changing whether they want it to or not. Um, it's being reshaped by outside influences. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're we're too big of an industry now, and too legitimate of an industry for um, outside investment not to continue to come in and to bring in, you know. Mm -hmm. Because you know, you look at look at all the big players that have come and invested now. You know, Treasury and Foley and you know Bollinger, Bollinger, and yeah, you know, from all over the place. I mean, they're all coming in now, and and I don't think that's going to be something that slows down. So, you know, um, so it's like, you know, I've always been told, you know, what hill do you want to die on? And I think that you know, it's it, it's to be sure we're going to see continued um, continued reshaping of the industry. Um, it's good to be in Oregon Pinot Noir and not you know, necessarily other regions. Look what the catastrophe that's happened up in Washington. I don't think that's a long-term thing, but my God, I mean, Chateau Saint-Michel blows up and the whole thing goes south. And just the environmental challenges and the cost of living and the cost of goods of coming out of California. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, in a recession in particular. I mean, those $200 bottles of wine look pretty, get even more expensive. So uh, I think Oregon's in a really good position, um, but it's in a delicate position. And uh, you're in that time where, again, it, it feels somewhat tectonic. And, uh, and we've had a lot of our own significant challenges. And uh, I don't think, I don't see any of those abating either. Um, so you've got to have good representation and you've got to have, you know, some kind of consensus. And, you know, I think the big issue right now is that you continue to have, the, you know, the, 80, 90% of the wineries are still very small. And then you have some mega wineries, you know, some of the larger ones. And they have very different interests. Mm -hmm. 
you know, very different um, challenges and uh, acknowledging that, you know. Um, and then as you see more M&A happen, you know, that how's that going to <laughs> shift the balance? And so you, you want to be able to listen and hear those many small wineries, but you also have to acknowledge that it's the big ones that are driving a lot of demand and raising all the boats. So you want to raise the boats for everybody. You don't want to say, well, just because you make less than 5,000 cases, you're irrelevant. But at the same time, you can't hate the big guys because they have the money. So it's this, it's this moment that we're at where I, I don't, you know, it's been that way for a while. I don't think it's going to change, but I, I do think that you're going to see an acceleration in outside and inside acquisitions, you know. And, and those people are going to be people that are going to have a different philosophy. It's like, you know, you buy somebody's house, well, what you, what's the first thing you do? You rip out the carpets and paint the walls, right? I mean, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. All right. So all the questions that I have for you okay. uh, today. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? No, I don't think so. Stream of consciousness stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much yeah. for your time, for okay. your thoughts, and for yeah. sharing all this with us. And go ahead and let you off the hook. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.